You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. I'm Melissa Lee. Here's what's ahead. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon sees a Goldilocks economy that will last for years, but says there are some risks out there that could derail the growth. We'll discuss. Plus, the recovery is not just the shelter in. That's where the money will flow in the tech sector. According to the street's number one analyst, he will join us to explain. And cryptocurrency inflows are hitting an all-time high. We'll take a look at where the money is heading and if the pace can continue. But we begin, as always, with today's markets. Don Chu's got the numbers. Hey, Don. The big word today is stable, Melissa, because you're seeing just very marginal gains and losses. We wavered between them throughout the course of the session. A seesaw, if you will, but again, not big moves Currently, the Dow Industrial is just about flat on the day. The S&P 500, similar move, and just one-tenth of 1% declines for the Nasdaq overall as well. If you take a look at some of the cruise line stocks, they're getting a bid right now because Carnival has basically said that they've seen a 90-some percent surge in bookings between last quarter and the current quarter that we just saw. And so maybe that does mean that travel is having some pent-up demand issues that it will face in the coming months. So those cruise line operators, you can see they're Carnival, Norwegian, and Royal Caribbean. Off-session highs still, though, up about 2%. And then take a look at what's happening with Tesla shares. We are seeing them slide and just hover right around session lows. There have been a couple of negative headlines out with regard to reports about whether or not Model S and Model X deliveries could be delayed for certain customers out there. That did push it to the session lows, but it's trying to form a little bit of a base right now. We'll see if it sticks around, Melissa. Still, keep an eye on Tesla shares now off 2.5% in this trade. Back over to you. All right. Thanks so much, Dom. J.P. Morgan Chase Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon is out with his annual letter to shareholders today, and he is bullish, very bullish on the economy, saying that factors like excess savings, more QE, a potential infrastructure bill, a a successful vaccine rollout and euphoria around the end of the pandemic all mean that the U.S. economy will likely boom and that it could easily run into 2023. On the market, he says that while equity valuations are quite high by almost all measures except against interest rates, historically a multi-year booming economy could justify their price. And while Diamond is hopeful, he says that besides the risk of new vaccine-resistant variants of COVID-19, there is also the risk that the increase in inflation may not be temporary and may not be slow, forcing the Fed to raise rates sooner and faster than people expect. Let's bring in Samir Samana, Senior Global Market Strategist at Wells Fargo Investment Institute, and Peter Bookbar, CIO at Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. Good to see you both. Samir, I will start with you. Do you agree that... There is going to be a boom coming that it could last through 2023, and it justifies where we are right now in terms of valuations. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. When you kind of consider what monetary policy is doing, which is basically the Fed's telling you that they're not going to do a whole lot of anything, um, really, until probably 2023, maybe even beyond. Um, and then you consider how much fiscal spending is in the pipeline um, with the Senate parliamentarian, you know, suggesting that you know the Democrats could use um, budget reconciliation again you know, a couple more times. So, you know, all those things really do add up to, you know, the strongest growth that we've seen in decades. And we think a lot of that will flow through into into earnings. And when you consider interest rates, you know, you still have a 10 year south of 2%. Um, We just don't think that's the right level. And and until the the 10 years of much better alternative for equities, we think they can go a lot higher. Peter, I want to ask you about the notion of inflation, whether it's temporary or not. And and our consumers and our corporations better equipped to deal with inflation, especially if it's temporary, even if it spikes, simply because they've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet, consumers have delevered, they've got record low debts, as Jamie Dimon also points out in his newsletter. And so they can they can sort of survive an inflation spike. Well, companies have been experiencing price pressures on the good side all through the middle of last year. 
I think now we're reaching a point where they're deciding to start passing it on to, uh, to the end consumer. Uh, we've seen already announcements from Kimberly Clark, General Mills, and from others mm -hmm. uh, that the retail consumer price uh, inflation is just beginning after we're already in the middle of a lot of goods type inflation. So the consumer, can they handle that? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure many can handle it. But on the lower end, you get inflation of two and a half, three, three and a half, uh, and that's absorbed in a, in a much more difficult way. So to Jamie Dimon's last point about the possibility of inflation not being transitory, being higher than expected, uh, that's the camp that I'm in. Yeah. Is that a risk in your view, Samir? You know, it's possible. Can't rule it out. Um, I mean, again, you know, just trying to, to, you know, engineer soft landings or inflation right within a particular range is always a little bit of a blunt instrument. Um, but what we would say is that, you know, probably a little bit higher inflation than what we, you know, experienced probably post Great Financial Crisis is probably good for companies. Is probably, you know, maybe a little bit harmful for fixed income investors. But at least for corporations, it should actually be a good thing. It may actually lead to um, better profitability and maybe even higher margins. Uh, Peter, I, I want to ask you this question. That is, if Jamie Dimon is right, as an investor, what do you buy? How do we use this information? How do we use this, this letter as a guide if you believe that he is right? Well, if you combine his belief that we're going to boom for a mm -hmm. period of time, in addition to the risk of inflation, you need to be in, in companies that have pricing power. And not all companies have pricing power. Some do. Commodity stocks, they're going to have pricing power, of course, just embedded in that. Uh, there'll be consum consumer-related names that will have some pricing power. But if we're also right here on the economy and inflation, we're going to see higher interest rates, which would then negatively impact, as we've seen so far, the sensitivity to higher-valued stocks to the changes in interest rates. You know, 1 in 75 was a trigger point for expensive parts of the market that had a, a, a pullback. They've since rebounded because yields have fallen, uh, but it's going to be a very mixed bag because there's this belief that, oh, own stocks because it's an inflation hedge. Well, some stocks are, but there are other stocks that are not. So I think we have to be a little bit more careful uh, in thinking what really is a true inflation hedge and what is not. Yeah, the issue, though, Peter, and, and I'll direct this one to Samir, is that the way you've described the portfolio, according to the, the world in which Jamie Dimon lives, is one that's a crowded trade at this point. Um, it is consensus now, Samir, that higher value tech stocks are not in favor, that they won't do well in a higher interest rate environment, even if interest rates stay in the range that we've seen uh, of late. Um, the reflation trade is the popular trade at this point. So do you stick with that? Do, do you stick with what the consensus has been up to this point? So we're, we're using a little bit of a barbell approach. So we think some of those secular trends, so, you know, think about ordering things online, think about working from home, think about, you know, consuming content online. Um, a lot of those are going to stick around for a while. Um, but we also think the reopening theme is for real. So we do think people will get back to traveling and concerts and those types of things. So we, we like a little bit of a barbell approach. What we would really try and do is avoid utilities staples, healthcare, and real estate. And you can really look at those other sectors as the areas where you want to focus that marginal dollar. We have upgraded financials, industrials, materials, and energy, but we think tech, consumer discretionary, and communication services do have to play for the equity markets to move meaningfully higher. Just quickly, why would you avoid healthcare when so many people during the pandemic have put off care and are now returning because they've been vaccinated and things are reopening uh, and, and healthcare is, is relatively cheap? 
So we would say people should go towards higher beta sectors. Again, mm -hmm. that's, that's what should do well in the type of market we're headed towards. If folks instead are a little bit defensive, um, that may be a good place for some dividend yield. But at least for us, beta is key. All right. Thanks, guys, for your thoughts. Appreciate it. Samir Samana and Peter Bukvar. Meantime, there is a rotation underway in the tech sector, as we mentioned. Some of the hot stay-at-home stocks from 2020 cooling off this year, dropping, including a 25% drop for pandemic darling Peloton. While tech titans are seeing some big gains, including Alphabet up 27%, Facebook up 13%, both of them hitting all-time highs today. Our next guest says there is more room to run in these big tech names, and some could actually benefit even as folks head out into the real world again. For more, let's welcome in Brian Nowak, the head of U.S. Internet Strategy at Morgan Stanley. Um, good to see you, Brian. Thank you for joining us. Great. How are you doing, Melissa? Thank you for having me. You rank them, which is handy for TV purposes. So number one is Amazon. <laughs> um, explain to me how Amazon is a beneficiary when people are cooped up, and also Amazon is a beneficiary when people are able to go out. If they got incremental sales, even an incremental sale because people had to buy online, don't they lose some of that incremental sale when people are, are free to go out? Yeah, we try to try to be reader friendly. No, I think on, on Amazon, it's a situation where the the market, in our view, is overestimating the extent to which U.S. consumer expenditure on Amazon is going to decelerate as the world reopens. The way we think about this is Amazon is in many ways in the business of behavior modification. And Prime is really behavior modification 101. You added a record number of Prime subs last year, we think. And the extent to which you add more and more prime subs to the base, the more the longer they stay in the base, they order across more categories, they shop across fewer incremental websites. And we think share of wallet actually grows. Will people spend less in some categories as the world reopens and they start traveling? Yes, but don't underestimate the stickiness of the prime ecosystem, what that means for Amazon's forward top line growth, as well as the free cash flow they're gonna generate through and post the recovery. I want to get to number two and number three, Alphabet and Facebook. But before we move on, I have to ask you about the conversation we we're having before in terms of higher interest rates. And how do you layer in higher interest rates when it comes to a name specifically like Amazon with a higher valuation? Yeah, I think, you know, we uh, we think about this a lot. And actually, so uh, our, our view on sort of the, the interest rate environment and any of the, the correction on the, the multiples we've seen in tech, I would actually argue that a lot of these large cap stocks like Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, are already pricing a lot of this in. I mean, these are these are companies that are going to grow 20% plus the next few years and that are trading at low to mid-teens forward free cash flow multiples. So I don't actually think if you look at the forward free cash flow we expect them to generate, Amazon, Alphabet are really that expensive and, and, neither, is, um, and neither is Facebook. All right, so let's get to the others. Uh, number two on your list is Alphabet, and, and not too many people think of it necessarily as a reopening trade, but 10 to 15 percent of paid search is related to travel, and of course that is ticking higher. So are we seeing that already, and, and how much more is there to come of that? Yeah, this is a, this is a, gr this is a great dark horse reopening trade. Uh, 10 to 15 percent of search is from uh, travel. As online travel agencies and Marriott or Hilton or any travel companies want to get in front of people as they're planning out their forward vacations for the rest of the year, they're going to spend on Google search, which helps Alphabet. The other thing that's happening from a recovery perspective is we think that the Google map is really doing very well because people are going on the map. They're trying to figure out where they want to go, places to go eat sushi, bars to go to, et cetera. And so the map has always been one of these utilities, I would argue, at Google that never really turned on the monetization around. 
And it sounds like based on early discussions, you are now starting to get some ad revenue flowing through that map. So as the world reopens and people are planning out where they want to go, where they want to eat, where they want to travel, there are a lot of ways in which we think the overall alphabet ecosystem across search, maps, and even YouTube, candidly, can really benefit from the ad dollar flows. And for Facebook, which is number three on your list, what what is the main catalyst here for this stock? And and we've already heard from many in the analyst community about the, the bullish advertising trends that Facebook and an alphabet are seeing. <clears throat> should we be concerned at what point should we be concerned that Amazon actually takes a piece of that? Yeah, good question. So on the on the first one, on the Facebook question specifically, yeah, the, the overall ad market remains very strong as GDP is recovering, ad dollars are following, and destination number one for ad dollars is online. Online destination is online destination number one is Facebook giving the leading reach, return on ad spend, et cetera. So all of that is intact. The other part of sort of the recovery aspect of Facebook that I don't want to underestimate is engagement should actually have somewhat of a tailwind as the world reopens. Because I would argue that as, as people are finally going out, going to bars, going to restaurants, traveling, enjoying themselves in different parts of the world, they're actually more likely to post on Facebook, to share those experiences. And so engagement may actually get an uptick through this, which is positive for the overall Facebook monetization engine as well. From an Amazon perspective, Amazon's ad business is in very impressive. It's a $20 billion annual ad business last year that we still think can grow around 40 to 50% the next few years. But the main source of where those dollars are coming from, we don't think it's Facebook. We think it's other offline dollars. We think these are dollars that were previously spent in uh, traditional retailers, grocery stores for end cap placement, even other offline channels. So it's not necessarily a winner take most or winner take all when it comes to the battle of Amazon, Google and Facebook. Be aware there are a lot of new types of dollars that were previously offline mm. that are moving online as consumer behavior and consumer wallets are increasingly going online. So the pie is getting bigger. Brian. Yeah. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Brian Nowak of Morgan Stanley. Coming up, crypto flows. They're climbing. A new report shows digital assets are getting more and more love from investors. We'll take a look at where the money is heading. The exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Inflows into cryptocurrencies are at a record high, sending the valuation of the crypto market to more than $2 billion for the first time. CoinShares reporting $4.5 billion poured into cryptocurrencies in the first quarter. That is up 11% from the $3.9 billion reported at the end of Q4. Joining us now with a breakdown of the numbers is Melton Demers, Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares. Melton, great to see you. Hi, Melissa. It's always such a pleasure to see you. What's your sense as to where the money is coming from? Look, um, really, really consistent and clear trend. Crypto investing is here to stay. Um, there's a phrase I really like that's look into my portfolio and gaze into my soul. And if we look at people's portfolios, what we're seeing, gold products, $20 billion in outflows over the last two quarters, crypto products, $7 billion in inflows over the last two consecutive quarters. This is a real trend. Capital is floating out of traditional alternatives and diversifiers like gold 
into Bitcoin. Um, I think Q2, you know, we've just kicked off the quarter, but already the numbers continue to show that trend accelerating. How do you think about the new products that are coming on the market, ETFs, the, the companies that are filing for ETFs? Will that dampen volatility in Bitcoin with more and more entry points, more and more on ramp, so to speak, into the market? Yeah, it's really been interesting to see, you know, historically the banks shunned us, which is why the crypto ecosystem really developed for its first five years outside of the traditional financial system. Now, as we've seen over the last few months, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, you name it, all of the world's largest asset managers and financial institutions are looking to begin offering Bitcoin and crypto investment products to their clients. However, at this point, as we've seen at CoinShares, we publish listed in March. Uh, Coinbase is publicly listing next week. There are now a number of avenues through which um, investors are getting exposure to cryptocurrencies, either directly through structured products. I mean, the numbers Coinbase posted for their Q1, $1.5 in EBITDA in the last quarter. If they continue that, they'll be larger than every single U.S. exchange in terms of volume and earnings. That's a pretty phenomenal accomplishment. So to me, it's sort of shocking that banks aren't moving more quickly. And it's a question to see, can traditional financial services catch up with crypto financial institutions? At CoinShares, we say probably not so fast and maybe not ever. We'll see. And, and I'll ask you a question to that point, and, and you may or may not be able to answer, but I know you can answer, Melton, just because of all the conversations <laughs> we've had in the past. You know, when investors are thinking about Coinbase and they've read the filing and, and they see that the volatility is going to be much tied to Bitcoin, they then ask themselves, why don't I put, you know, a dollar into Bitcoin as opposed to a dollar into a Coinbase, particularly when Bitcoin, the correlation between Bitcoin and, and a lot of other, other altcoins are so high at this point. It's really mm -hmm. a bet on Bitcoin at this point in time. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Look, one trend we track closely in the industry, cryptocurrencies now over $2 trillion market in aggregate. Of that, Bitcoin is still 55%. Ethereum is about 12%. So as you alluded to, a lot of things in the crypto space have a beta of one to Bitcoin, right? They're closely correlated. And one of the key questions in terms of exposure is when you're buying a crypto equity, right, exposure to a company, are you really buying exposure to the underlying asset? What's been interesting to observe as crypto companies get more integrated into the normal financial services sector is some of that volatility is going away because some of these offerings are not always directly tied to revenues um, and to prices. They're really tied to transaction volumes or increased activity in the cryptosphere. So I think over time, that relationship will continue to decline. And Bitcoin's volatility, in our view, is part of the price of opportunity. You know, I continue to believe allocating to both the assets themselves as well as some of the companies emerging in the space will continue to be an attractive value proposition. And over time, those two probably will begin to diverge more. Mm -hmm. But we're still in the early innings, and there is, as you noted, still a high degree of correlation. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the volatility in Bitcoin and the opportunity there, because one bank that shunned Bitcoin early on, JP Morgan, they actually have an analyst now that follows uh, cryptocurrency. And that analyst basically said that once the volatility re of Bitcoin reaches to the volatility of gold approximately, that's when institutions won't be scared to get in. But at that point, in a day, in a world in which Bitcoin and gold have the same volatility, Melton, <laughs> are the best days of Bitcoin behind it? 
Um, I actually think that's that's not the case. One of the things I think is so interesting is when people analogize Bitcoin to gold, calling it digital gold. That's been a popular and persistent narrative, but I'd really like to kill that narrative. Bitcoin is not digital gold. Gold is a shiny rock. Bitcoin is not a shiny rock. And I say that in the bluntest way possible. Bitcoin is not only an asset, but it's a building block for a new type of financial infrastructure that's global in nature, can bring a lot of liquidity and connectivity to markets. We're seeing this with the tremendous explosion of activity in the decentralized finance space. And so I think it's fundamentally different than gold. Bitcoin's potential, in my view, is much greater than gold's $9 trillion market cap. So I don't want to constrain Bitcoin to the gold narrative. They're two very different things. All right. Maltem, always great to speak with you. Thank you. You as well, Melissa. Maltem Demures of CoinShares. Coming up, Brews, burritos, and burgers. We've got the results of the latest survey on where American teens are eating and spending their money. Plus, brand loyalty for one of those is at a record high among teens. We'll tell you what it is. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to the the Exchange. Let's take a check on the markets right now. And I hate to say it, but the markets are pretty flat here. The biggest move uh, in terms of uh, the major indices on the Nasdaq Composite down by two-tenths of a percent. The story there, though, is the move in big cap technology. We're actually seeing the Nasdaq 100 try and stay in the green at this hour. Let's take a check on the sectors, the best performing sectors, energy and communication services right behind me. Materials bringing up the rear. It's down by 1.3 percent. And here's some of the movers at this hour. Retail names like L Brands, Abercrombie, American Eagle and Levi Strauss higher after UBS turned bullish on these names. This based on companies' denim exposure and the expectation that they will benefit from new fashion trends. Alternative energy players giving up yesterday's gains. EV battery maker Romeo Power down about 16% right now after surging as much as 50% yesterday. And take a look at the K-Web, the China Internet ETF. That is down 4%. Pindodo is one of the biggest losers, down nearly 7% right now. Now let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Melissa. Hello, everyone. District attorney in Atlanta says that she will not pursue charges against a Georgia lawmaker who was arrested during a protest against the state's new election law. Representative Park Cannon was arrested after knocking on the door of Governor Brian Kemp shortly after he signed the bill into law. Los Angeles County sheriffs say that Tiger Woods was driving more than 80 miles an hour when he went off the road and crashed his SUV two months ago. And that excessive speed was the primary cause of the accident. Officials say they found no evidence that Woods was driving impaired. You can get all the new details on the accident tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. Prosecutors in New York are asking a court to throw out 90 drug convictions over a police corruption case. An officer involved in those cases has been charged with perjury and accused of framing innocent people. And Saks Fifth Avenue says that it will stop selling fur. Retailer says that it will close its fur salons over the next two years. Saks follows Macy's, Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom in shutting down fur sales. You are now up to date. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. Thank you, Rahel. Coming up, iPhones are getting even more popular with teens. Visa's pain could be plaid's gain. And from the NFL to the NFT, the football great also jumping on that bandwagon. All that and much more. Today's Rapid Fire. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. Time for Rapid Fire here with their takes. Bob Pisani, Kate Rooney, and Casey Newton, editor, platformer, and a CNBC contributor. All right, first up, Piper Sandler's Taking Stock with Teen Survey out today. And we are learning a whole lot about Gen Z from their favorite restaurant. 
We'll have more on that later to their favorite celebrity. One of their tech favorites, Apple. 88% of teens own an iPhone, up from 85% last year. 90% intend to purchase an iPhone if they don't already have one. Both of these metrics are record highs for the survey. Piper Sandler's analysts believe these trends could catalyze further services growth. Shares of Apple still off double digits from its all-time high. Casey, I don't feel like this is surprising. No, we, we've seen this phenomenon for years now. Teens, of course, love the blue bubbles, the iMessage bubbles. And if they see a green one, uh, you're going to not be sitting at the cool kids table. So I just look at the survey and I see a huge opportunity for Android. What do they need to do to start uh, you know, getting into this game? Yeah. And, and Bob, some might argue, you know, is this going to do much for their stock price? Because their stock price seems to be dealing more with higher interest rates versus whether or not people like their product. Uh, yeah, but the Apple Watch is a growing part of the overall mm-hmm. revenues. I thought it was very significant. 28% of teens say they own an Apple Watch. That's a lot higher than I thought. I'll tell you what's even more interesting, Melissa. Apple Watch is number two amongst higher-end teens, higher-income teens. Their number one brand is Rolex. Uh, what's the difference between a Rolex and an Apple Watch? A lot. Maybe $10,000? I don't know. I want to hang out with these, with that crowd. I mean, I didn't know what I don't think I knew what a Rolex was until I was in college. <laughs> uh, Kate, what do you what do you make of this Kids today? What do you make of this survey? Because a key part of it is that services, you know, the more people who own phones, the more services they can sell. And that's really been the bullish part of the case for Apple. Right. You mentioned the Apple Watch. They also mentioned Apple Pay. Cash is still the number one payment method for teens. Apple Pay is next and Venmo. So if you think about sort of these other lines of business, if payments and that whole ecosystem gets more popular with this generation, you could see a world where that becomes a bigger slice of the revenue for Apple. But I'm shocked that cash is still big amongst teens. I thought everybody was you know, trading crypto and using their digital payment apps. <laughs> I'm buying NFTs at the same time. <laughs> um, Casey, when we start thinking about Apple, though, I mean, should we start thinking about other ways, you know, Apple should... Make innovate its business. Let's let's say maybe a subscription for its phone, um, and as a way to sell services as opposed to actually selling the phone. I mean, there are a lot of analysts out there who say Apple's business model should evolve. Yeah, and we've seen them introduce a a bundle of services last year. That seems like it's going okay. Uh, I think the bigger opportunity for Apple is going to be in that next generation of hardware. We've seen some reports that there may be a mixed reality headset as early as this year. If that is true, I assume uh, the teens will be among the many people who are interested. All right, let's move on here. Plaid announcing a $425 million funding round led by Altimeter Capital. This new financing boosts Plaid's valuation to more than $13 billion. And to put that in perspective, Visa had agreed to buy Plaid for just over $5 billion early last year. Visa scrapped its takeover efforts when the DOJ sued to block that deal. Kate, the folks at Plaid must be breathing a sigh of relief given what they're valued at right now. That's the takeaway, that it was a good miss by Plaid. The DOJ got in the way. It had been almost a year since that deal had been announced. And in the meantime, you saw companies like Stripe reaching almost a $100 billion valuation. The partners that Plaid works with, whether it's Robinhood, Coinbase, all of the, I mean, Venmo is another one. These guys have grown massive amounts. Plaid is sort of the middleman there that benefits as a lot of these fintech apps become more popular. And digital adoption becomes, I mean, way accelerated Uh, during the pandemic. So Platt has just sort of ridden this fintech wave, gotten a $13 billion valuation. As one source tells me, that's way above where they were going to go with Visa. So it seems like this probably worked out for the best uh, on Platt's side.
Yeah, and Jamie Dimon actually refers to all this competition coming from the fintech world, uh, Bob, and specifically the lack of regulation for fintechs versus what the banks face. And that's a huge competitive advantage for all of these players like Uplad, for instance. Yeah, but, you know, I remember 10 years ago, Melissa, when you and I were covering this and all of these startups were out there and the banks were terrified that suddenly they were going to get taken out. What happened to most of those startups? They all got bought out for the most part. Plaid's still standing. Most of the others got bought out. And if you read that Jamie Dimon letter, which, by the way, is absolutely a stunning, big think letter, really impressive. He specifically said, we have money to make acquisitions yes. and we are specifically looking at acquisitions positions in the fintech area. So nobody, JP Morgan is not going to go under to competition, even against people like Plate. Yeah, I understand that the acquisitions may be coming, but they're still going to be the ones that are standing and maybe ones like a square whose stock price has really um, you know, astronomically gone up in recent years. Casey, how do you think about acquisitions and who might be right for an acquisition by a big bank like a JP Morgan? Well, I think, uh, you know, there are any number of companies that some of these banks would like to buy, uh, Square, Stripe. I mean, I'm sure that banks would be salivating at that prospect. But increasingly, we're seeing these independents show real backbone. They want to be in it for the long haul. I actually think Plaid now faces a tough challenge. They just tried to cash out. They couldn't. And now they have to go do the whole thing independently. So I actually think this is maybe going to give them a harder road than they would have had if that acquisition had actually gone through, even if now maybe they, they stand to make a little bit more money. What's the thinking, Kate, amongst uh, VCs, private equity folks in terms of fintech and, and where the roll-up happens? I mean, obviously, big banks want to buy these companies, but could a square, for instance, go out and buy a bunch of companies? Is there a roll-up within fintech to happen? We're seeing a little bit of that. You, like Casey mentioned, you know, some of these guys have a harder road, an IPO, you know, while the market's pretty hot, and some of these companies like Coinbase uh, listing next week, the market is ripe for these guys. So they've gotten a ton of sort of follow-on funding. If you think of a company like Robinhood, a lot of the investors have doubled down, put even more money into these companies because of this sort of digital trend and that wave. We're seeing a little bit of roll-up, but if you think about the antitrust issue, if they're looking at a visa, you know, visa probably going to have a tough time buying a smaller startup. And those were really the guys who were going to go in and buy. So you wonder if J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon will have an easy time, you know, looking at one of these smaller competitors and potentially running into new antitrust issues. Good point there. All right. This is our last story, I think. Uh, this one is for New Yorkers traveling to New Jersey to play sports bet. News here. New York State has approved a budget for its fiscal 2022 that would allow legal online and mobile wagering in the state for the first time. And while New York will be the country's most populous state to offer online betting investors, don't look to be thrilled. DraftKings, Penn National, Caesars and MGM are all in the red. Bob, at the same time, there was an expectation that eventually this would happen. The stocks have seen amazing run-ups, like a DraftKings, which is up just this year, 34% up uh, in the past 12 months, more than 300%. So how do you, how do you interpret this? Well, do you see what Cuomo said? He said, number one, I don't want the casinos running this. That was, a, I don't know about a surprise. Maybe it makes sense from Cuomo's point of view. Cuomo's point of view is, why should we give all this money to the casinos to let them do it? Let's let the state run it. Let's have the lottery system run it in New York. I, I don't know how I feel about that, frankly. I, I tend to think that uh, having casinos run it would certainly be more dynamic, more dynamic and more 
interesting for sports bettors. From Cuomo's point of view, his attitude is, why should I give money to the, the casinos? I, I think they're setting up for a, a real fight here about the future of gaming. It seems like they're in the minority. Most other places, that's not the model they're using. It does, it, it does seem strange that the state would want to run an operation like that, Casey, just so that the money, I mean, it costs money to run that operation as well. <laughs> you don't want to give the money away, but at the same time, do you want to spend the money to create a pro- product that already exists in the marketplace um, in order to make some money? Yeah, sure. I mean, to me, this just seems like a good old fashioned case of a, of a governor wanting to maximize the amount of control they have over something, right? You'd rather sort of have that, uh, you know, under your own purview than give it away to some private enterprise. And, you know, I'm sure the governor is betting that uh, if, if this plan proceeds, that he will be able to earn more for the state than through this alternative system. Yeah. Kate, your thoughts on this? I don't know if you're better. You don't strike me as one, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not much of a better. And it feels like there's other outlets for people. You know, this seems like New York is, is catching up to what people expected. It was priced in for a lot, of, a lot of these stocks. But there's a lot of other outlets for people to spend their money, speculate, whether it's stocks or NFTs. So we'll see how much of a uh, windfall this is for New York State. Yeah. And you got to wonder, once people start being able to get out, if they want to spend as much time on a screen doing whatever, whether it be investing in stocks uh, to, to betting on sports. Finally here, this is the last story. I guess he's joining the NFT craze. Seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers QB, is launching an NFT platform called Autograph this spring. The company will connect big-name celebrities with creators to develop digital collectibles. And, of course, Autograph will also produce Brady non-fungible tokens. Who doesn't have an NFT product? I mean, Casey, come on. This is like, it makes my eyes glaze over when I read about a celebrity with an NFT. Who cares? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in the same boat. And yet, when you look at the success that NBA Top Shot has had over the past few weeks, it's only natural that the big stars of the other sports are going to want to get in on the action. So I do expect that at least for the next three to six months, you're going to see people taking a crack at this, seeing if the NFT craze continues uh, apace. And look, I think that the Tom Brady, you know, selling digital collectibles is not a bad bet at all. Bob, I know you enjoy uh, hard asset collectibles yourself, given the shots from your house with all the the posters, etc. I'm an old I collect old 60s rock posters and I collected comic books uh, many decades ago. So this makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, The memorabilia business in general has been centralizing for many, many years, the physical memorabilia business. There's now central uh, depositories for comic book auctions, for sports auctions owned by several big houses at this point. So why not uh, centralize NFTs? It, It seems a little early. I would would note that physical collectibles are doing really well, you know, including uh, baseball cards, uh, uh, comic books. The uh, first Superman just sold for three and a quarter million dollars yesterday. Three and a quarter. You might say, what idiot's going to buy a comic book for three million dollars? But it's the first Superman. It's 1938. Somebody did. Mm-hmm. So physical memorabilia is doing very fine. Yeah. Still. And, and Kate, I would imagine that there there's a lot of you know, salivating going on in terms of the possibilities for NFT as a market, uh, in terms of companies that may deal with NFT trading. There's now talk that, you know, you can use NFTs to own a slice of something. So to sort of stock marketify some of these hard asset collectibles into NFT form, that seems to be the potential next step. That's right. A lot of these investors are looking at sort of where the digital economy is going and saying, okay, if people are living their lives online, 
you think of Roblox and some of the gaming companies and people are spending their money online, why not have digital collectibles and assets that you can buy? There's some examples of people buying real estate in video games and spending a fortune on things like that. So I think that is sort of the next step here as people, you know, for better or worse, are spending so much time online. But like you mentioned earlier, will people actually want to be sitting in front of their screens a year from now and they do have the opportunity to go out more. But yeah, the, the real estate thing is mind blowing that you would you know, want to buy a chunk of space in a digital world. It's just this metaverse thing is fascinating. Well, that's because you can also charge for advertising on your space by putting up digital billboards. There's a way to monetize that, that invest. We had a whole segment on Fast Money about real estate in the metaverse. So it's, it, it is fascinating. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for a great conversation. Bob Pisani, Kate okay. Rooney and Casey Newton. All right, President Biden set to deliver remarks on his American jobs plan, what the message will be and why the very definition of infrastructure is becoming a partisan issue. Plus, more from Jamie Dimon's letter, including his take on how China sees America. Is America playing catch up to China? We'll explore that. The Exchange will be right back. President Biden's expected to talk about his American jobs plan shortly. For more on what we can expect, let's bring in Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Hey, Melissa. President Biden is expected to ramp up pressure on lawmakers who are currently at home in their districts working uh, to pass the American jobs plan, which has come under pressure uh, from the other side of the aisle for the limited nature of the traditional infrastructure that is included in passage, as well as questions about whether it actually will produce a return on investment. Earlier today, Treasury officials said that decidedly, yes, it would be pro-growth, according to Treasury's internal estimates and analysis from Moody's. But the Penn Wharton budget model said that in each of the next three decades, the plan would actually detract from U.S. growth, uh, which is a fact that Republicans are seizing on in addition to the scope of the package. Take a look at what comprises the American jobs plan. About half of the $2 trillion price tag contributes to physical infrastructure that gets traditionally funded by Congress each year. Add in broadband power grids and water pipes to that as well. But on the flip side, the biggest single line item goes toward elder care. And then somewhere in the middle are projects to rehab schools, housing and federal facilities, as well as invest in manufacturing. Today, the Commerce Secretary joined the White House press briefing to say that business is on board, that all of that is needed. And she urged Republicans to come to the table to negotiate. Every single business leader I've talked to applauds the fact that this package is more than just roads, bridges, and water. Like, come on, 35% of Americans in rural areas don't have broadband. You cannot have a modern economy without that. We have a crisis in semiconductor manufacturing. You cannot have a modern economy without that. She said that uh, you know, Republicans should be willing to negotiate but not come to the table with a fraction of what the administration is proposing, Melissa. But as, as the White House and as these officials talk about the broad and loose definition of infrastructure, uh, you know, it, it's becoming memeable in, in its own right. And so the definition of infrastructure is going to be debated as the administration tries to argue that it should begin with a, a lowercase i and encapsulate a, a whole host of things here. Yeah.
Yeah, Kayla, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon today weighing in on America's race with China, including on infrastructure, saying, quote, the Chinese see in America that is losing ground in technology, infrastructure and education, a nation torn and crippled by politics, as well as racial and income inequality and a country unable to coordinate government policies. And to give you an idea, here's what China's spending plans are on on that front. One point four trillion dollars for 5G in digital infrastructure through 2025, 120 billion on railroad investments through 2020 and building more than 160 airports in the next 15 years. So, Kayla, how does this compare to the U.S.? And does that factor into the president's plan? Well, the China spending outpaces and eclipses that of the U.S., but of course, Melissa, they micromanage their economy and they handle these things very differently than, than the U.S. handles them here. The administration is acutely aware of China as the 800-pound gorilla uh, on the world stage. President Biden has said that China is eating the U.S.'s lunch on infrastructure, and the transportation secretary uh, has said that China is stepping into a leadership role that the U.S. ceded decades ago and that the U.S. needs to step back into that. And and there is bipartisan agreement that the China threat needs to be neutralized and soon. But the disagreement uh, is in how to neutralize that threat. The White House hopes that uh, the insertion of certain provisions in this plan, like $600 billion uh, to rehab manufacturing and supply chains, uh, will bring bipartisan support, will secure some of those votes for this package. But it actually might end up doing the opposite because many Republicans, even though they support those initiatives, they say that issue is large enough on its own that it needs to be dealt with on a standalone basis and not as part of this multi-trillion dollar package. And then there is just the amount of money that is going toward infrastructure uh, itself. And that if the goal is to meet China in a tit-for-tat way and build uh, a high high-speed rails and high-tech airports, then perhaps this is not the moonshot-type funding that will actually get that. If you take a look at this comparison, the last time the U.S. did a multi-year surface transportation bill, uh, it averaged out to about $61 billion a year. By comparison, the $621 billion in this package averages out to about $77 billion over eight years. That's just about a 26% increase. So on an apples-to-apples basis, Melissa, it's not that much bigger than what the U.S. has done in the past. And so if it is about meeting China eye to eye on transportation, then then Republicans argue even that would need to be structured differently. The cost, though, of course, brings up the notion of raising taxes to pay for this whole package. And it sounds like the Commerce Secretary has already sort of backed down, if you will, on the proposal for a 28 percent corporate tax rate. She was asked specifically about questions raised by West Virginia moderate Democrat Joe Manchin, where he said he would be able to set, uh, to support a 25 percent rate, not 28 percent. Uh, she said that that would be open to negotiation and wouldn't go any further. Certainly the administration's position has been that this package is readily negotiable. Every part of it is. Uh, so we'll see where that ends up. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tashi. Still ahead, we'll have more from Piper Sandler's biannual teen survey. And by the way, food is hot. <laughs> the names to buy to cash in on the teen spending trends. Next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Piper Sandler out with its biannual teen survey. And one area where teens spend big is food. Kate Rogers joins us now with a look at which brands take the top spot. Hey, Kate. 
Hey, Melissa, well, we all know teens love their food. Piper Sandler is out today with its latest Taking Stock with Teens Spring Report, surveying 7,000 teens nationwide with an average age of 16.1 years old. No surprise here, food is teens' number one priority overall for the wallet at 23% of wallet share. For males, it's the top priority. For females, it's number two behind only clothing and accessories. The top brands for both upper income and average income teens are Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, and Chipotle. The survey says that Chipotle is holding steady with brand scores and gaining a lot of traction with average income teens. That could be thanks in part to its marketing awareness campaigns on places like TikTok, its merchandise lines, and more. Starbucks is the most preferred coffee company, but its mind share is muted from prior highs. Piper Sandler says its brand equity is relevant social currency among Gen Z. McDonald's is still in the top five brands for both upper and average income teens, but its mind share also dipped. This could shift, though, as the company has leaned into digital engagement and, of course, has those celebrity partnerships with Travis Scott and Jay Balvin. Overall, teens overwhelmingly prefer limited service brands to full service brands that offer social experience but also have that affordability factor. Teens are also a part of the reopening trade. 69% of them plan to take the vaccine. That's up from 64% in the fall. 81% Melissa say they plan to dine in. That's up from 77% in the fall. Piper Sandler projects that restaurant spending is going to rebound as both mobility and spending patterns return to normal. Back over to you. Uh, Kate, you know what's interesting is Chick-fil-A is a top spot, and a lot of these brands spend a lot of money marketing to these teens, but Chick-fil-A does not. So how did that all happen? You know, Chick-fil-A has a lot of brand awareness. The chicken is really, really popular. They'll get into, you know, these little tips here and there on Twitter. They do market, but they don't do these big celebrity partnerships like we see from McDonald's or these TikTok viral campaigns like we see from Chipotle. Big shift from when I was a teen. We used to hang out at Chili's. It was all about casual dining. All <laughs> these quick service and fast food companies are really, really hot right now. All right, Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Thanks. All right, that does it for us here on The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch with more corporations responding to Georgia's new voting law, Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's Secretary of State, will join to discuss the fallout. Power Lunch starts right after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.